Hello everyone, it's me, Monica, and you're listening to Open Arted Podcast, a podcast exploring why making art can be more practical than we think. In today's episode, you will hear Noah Kagiyama, a founder of Bulletproof Musicians, a platform where he educates performing artists about performance psychology and how to beat nerves and perform your very best on stage. Noah holds violin performance degree, but most importantly, a PhD in psychology. Now he is a faculty member at Juilliard where he conducts workshops on performance enhancement. Before we jump to the episode, I would like to share some thoughts which appeared for me yesterday when I was uh, working with a sound engineer and recording some pieces uh, in Vienna. And uh, by the end of uh, the whole eight-hour session, we had this very nice conversation about uh, recording industry and classical music. And it was really interesting what the sound engineer said about what tendencies he sees in musicians. So he noted two, uh, you could call it problems, but maybe just tendencies to not make it such a big deal. But basically that we as musicians... We don't learn the notes and the text so honestly and deeply as we should. Uh, I don't mean the notes, I just mean the actual meaning of the piece. And uh, then second of all, that since we are at this high level, we reach certain point and then from that point we mostly never try to go more than that. So what he meant that normally to achieve good results you need 20% of your energy since you had those amazing skills since many years ago and to reach a good level in peace in the performing it's not that hard but then it comes those 20% where you have to really push yourself and kind of use 80% of your energy to make the piece sound excellent And I thought that this connected so well with today's episode because with Noah we discussed a lot the way we practice, how we should change or improve our practice and he talked a lot about recording yourself. And uh, yesterday I was doing this eight hour long uh, session and I felt how improving I was. So yeah, just a couple of thoughts and I really hope you will get more (laughs) valuable information about practicing from Noah. And uh, yeah, so let's jump to this episode and uh, let me know if you learn some new tips. So welcome, Noah. I'm very happy to have you on Open Arted. And actually, I think I discovered you a couple of years ago through Angela Miles Beaching, if you if you know her. And uh I would just like to uh, ask you maybe to tell me a little bit about yourself. Where are you now and where do you work currently? And uh, yeah, so if you could share some information. Yeah, so I'm based in the United States. Uh, I'm in New York City and I do a number of different things, to be honest. But uh, (laughs) primarily why I'm in New York City is because I teach at the Juilliard School um, since 2011 and also am on the faculty as a performance coach at the New World Symphony, uh, do some one-on-one coachings, but primarily, actually, my time is spent blogging and podcasting and, um, and doing classes online and working with groups and 
essentially trying to let more musicians know that there is such a such a, an area of research as sport and performance psychology, and it's quite practical and useful and can make a really big difference in our experience of practicing and playing on stage. Yeah, so actually this is why I, I wanted to talk to you really, because you know, the performance anxiety is a topic among every single musician. And uh, I know that you hold uh, yourself a violin uh, performance masters from Juilliard, And uh, could you tell me a little bit about that shift? You know, uh, what happened? Actually, I was listening to one podcast with you where you kind of mentioned that uh, you thought that maybe your love for music was not enough, uh, you know, to be a performer. And I was really curious about that switch because I think many of us uh, doubt every day if, if we should go this path and you actually decided to go to psychology. So I'm very interested about that. Yeah, so I had always had a difficult time practicing. Uh, ever since <laughs> I was little, it was always like pulling teeth. And I thought that that would someday pass and I would become more invested in practicing and preparing. And And I discovered when I was doing my master's at Juilliard that that time wasn't appearing to get any closer to happening. And um, I mean, the experience that really crystallized it for me was I was accepted into this international competition and had a whole summer to prepare and to get ready. I knew exactly what I needed to do and just could not get myself to do it. And I actually liked competitions. I enjoyed being part of that sort of experience. And, um, <clears throat> and I actually preferred that to normal performances. And so you know, as the competition got closer, I realized more and more that I just how unprepared I was, like I hadn't really learned the third movement of the concerto, um, never mind had the concerto memorized, you know, there's multiple rounds of repertoire. I had the first round sort of learned, second round was a little bit iffy, um, some of it hadn't really been memorized again, and I was like, wow, I'm in, I'm in not great shape. Here, but I didn't want to embarrass myself. And so I had sort of seen this coming and I had taken a sports psychology class at Juilliard with Don Green, who was teaching there at the time. And so as I was not practicing enough, I was still doing some of what I learned in the class in terms of the mem mental preparation of things. And I was starting to feel more comfortable and understand that better. And so when the first round came and went, I played better than I really should have played given my level of preparation. So then I was advanced to the second round, and then I started to worry a little bit more because I really wasn't that well prepared for the second round. And so the night before, I'm listening to the the Bach Chacon on my CD player over and over. I kept it running all night long as I was sleeping, hoping that something would stick in my head. And, and most of it did stick in my head, but there were one little problem in the middle somewhere and stumbled a bit and found myself where I needed to be and, and got through it. And even in the second round, played better than I really should have played and um, discovered that, wow, okay, so I don't seem to be able to get myself to practice because maybe it's not meaningful enough to me in some way. And But the sports psych stuff is really intriguing and really useful and, and it kind of saved me. And so as you know, I was starting to get closer to finishing my degree there, really having no idea what to do, that started increasingly to seem more and more intriguing to me. And, and I didn't know what that path would look like but at least it seemed like one that I 
was more curious and interested in pursuing because I you might have heard this story too but I was in a quartet at the time just to do little concerts around town and gigs nothing serious but we were joking one day about what we'd do if we won the lottery and everyone <laughs> in the group had very not very but relatively specific ideas about what they wanted to do with the money you know after buying an apartment and a car and you know a strat and all that um all their <laughs> ideas were still in music I was like, well, that's so weird. Like, why, 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 why? Like, you don't have to play the cello or viola or violin anymore. You just won the lottery. Like, why would you still do this? I didn't actually ask them that. But in my head, I'm like, well, that's so weird. Because I knew that I had no idea what I would do, but I knew that I wouldn't continue to play. And so that sort of contrast between my experience and their experience, plus the competition and discovering that performance psychology existed, all kind of shaped... Um, it led me to the decision that, well, I don't know where sports psychology is going to take me, but that excites me more than the idea of an orchestra or a teaching position or an ensemble of, of any kind. So, um, yeah, so it's like, yeah, well, let's let's try this because this at least I'm a little more excited to wake up in the morning and pursue. Yes, I noticed two things that you are one of the kind who likes to go to competitions because I feel like there are these two groups who hate it or still do it because they feel like me for example I, I still do it because although I feel like it's really not my thing but I feel like the you know the whole classical music industry makes you do that and then also you said that you were enjoying doing mental skills and I think this is also very interesting because uh, as far as I know we kind of all of, most of the musicians are avoiding that and you are the only one who I've met who said that they prefer, you know, doing mental skills than practicing actual piano or violin or other instrument. So I was really curious to know why do you think for you it was like, was it only because you were so lazy to practice or was it something something different? Well, my relationship with practicing actually did start to change after the competition and after I started to understand and learn more about effective learning. Um, and so after I finished Juilliard, I, you know, it took me a little while to make this transition formally to psychology. And so I went to Indiana and did, you know, a semester or two of uh, a performer diploma and still went to a summer festival and so forth. And, and actually in that year, since I started internally to know that I was going to leave music, I started getting much better at practicing <laughs> And starting to enjoy it a little bit more, partly because, A, I started to understand what exactly I should be doing when I was practicing. And B, partly because of that, I was actually starting to see more direct, tangible fruits of my labors, as it were. Like, I wanted to improve this passage. I knew how to approach it. I knew what I wanted it to sound like. And I knew how I would go about making it sound that way and it did start to sound that way and it would not only sound that way in practice but the day later or a week later or on stage I would be able to make it sound that way and so practicing itself became more gratifying because the process itself of practicing became clear to me and more productive feeling but also the results of my time and energies were clear and more tangible and, and more along the lines of what I wanted whereas throughout the first 20 some years of my life 
I would just put time in and repetition in, cross my fingers and hope some of it actually stuck and would translate to the stage. And often it didn't. So it basically kind of felt like an exercise in futility and not a lot of fun and not very creative and not very thoughtful and um, kind of a not a waste of time because I did get better, but not a very gratifying use of, of time and energy. Um, so yeah, so I think that's partly why I wasn't a huge fan of practicing and it started to change over time. And um, in the mental part of it, I think what was most interesting to me about performance psychology is that it's not, you know, do this for 10 more minutes or do 10 more repetitions of this or um, something that's kind of vague and abstract, but it was very concrete and very clear to me what exactly I needed to do. Um, like how exactly to approach problem solving a particular passage or uh, what exactly to focus on when I'm on stage versus what I should be thinking about when I'm trying to learn a new skill or refine an existing skill and so forth. Yeah, so interesting because this is what you described is exactly how I feel very often that you cannot really, you know, if someone asks like, what are your goals or like, I think it's sports they you know they always like make these goals and then they tr try to achieve it and then they measure themselves and then very often I feel like how can you do this with peace learning and practicing and of course it's af after some time you kind of learn the text and then you go somewhere but you don't really know where you're going you know and this is exactly how I feel and I I suppose many of us feel feel like that so what what would you say would like how to start you know how to become a better learner and how, what to do basically well for me part of it was maybe some of it was laziness on my part but I started off with a new piece say just playing it um, and I didn't really have a concept of what I wanted it to sound like <clears throat> like I could tell if it didn't sound good and I would just keep playing until it sounded less bad but I didn't actually have a specific thing that I was that I was aiming towards um, like I didn't sit down and look at the score I did not know what the other parts were whether it's an orchestral part or whether it's you know the pianist and what they're doing in a sonata um, didn't listen to a variety of different recordings it's like listen to one um, I didn't compare and contrast I didn't decide which approaches to a particular phrase or what kind of an accent I wanted here or what kind of a dot I wanted or where exactly the phrase should be going, um, how I wanted to play the second time differently than the first. Like I didn't really make all these decisions and think about the piece in a very thoughtful or creative way. And so it was really just about minimizing errors and mistakes and playing it enough times until those started to get less and less. Um, and I think so for me, one of the first, probably a better way of, of articulating it conceptually is something that um, great violin teacher uh, Ivan Galamian described, which is where, you know, there's three phases or stages of practicing. You know, the first part is conceptual. You have to figure out what you want a piece to sound like before you go about actually trying to do it. And the second stage is once you know what you want something to sound like, you do have to figure out mechanically how to make that happen. Um, and that's where I think I spent almost all my time 
Um, and then the third stage is, of course, once you know what you want, once you have figured out how to get it, you still have to be able to get it to sound that way the very first time under pressure from the very beginning to the very end without stopping. And that's a whole other challenge that I also ignored and didn't spend a lot of time focusing on. So, I mean, even for <clears throat> um, the mechanical stage, I never really thought about what are the mechanics involved in making sure I'm able to produce this kind of sound consistently the very first time. I just sort of intuited my way to various solutions, but didn't think about, you know, where um, relative to the bridge should my bow be? How many hairs should I be using? How much pressure should there be? Like how fast should the bow be going? Does it change relative to, you know, the tip and the frog? Like there's so many little interesting variables that we can manipulate and, and tweak to get the result that we want. And I just sort of mindlessly let my body try to figure it out without actually thinking about it in concrete terms, which at least for me made it a lot more interesting. Once I was like, once I felt like a scientist in the lab tweaking different, or even like a chef in the kitchen, right? Trying a little more cinnamon, a little bit less cayenne, like a little longer at this heat versus a shorter time at this heat with a different kind of pan. Like it become, or it became for me, a lot more interesting to play around with these different factors and variables and ingredients. I was also curious if performance and musical performance, do they, do they differ? Like, is, it, is there a difference? Because some, somehow, sometimes it feels that musical performance is a little bit different from, say, if I go give a speech or something else, or, or maybe even like in the Olympics, I, I do a task. Is it different or is it actually exactly the same? What do you think? A lot of the performance elements are pretty much the same. Um, but it does, there are some differences, of course, in different sports or different skills. Like, for instance, um, a classical musician isn't going to be having to adapt how they play based on who their opponent is, right? So if you're in tennis, yeah. <laughs> for instance, you don't know what kind of a shot your opponent's going to hit, and you're going to have to pull out some type of skill that's relevant to that particular ball that's coming in your direction out of your bag of skills um, in the moment. Whereas, you know, in music, sure, there's some factors that might be changing. Like if you're playing in an ensemble, you know, the cellist might play a little bit faster than they did in rehearsal or slower or approach the phrase in a different way that leads you to want to reciprocate in some way um, that matches that. But, um, but largely speaking, a lot of the things that you're doing are going to be pre-programmed to some degree um, in terms of there not being new notes and so forth, depending on who you're playing with. Jazz, of course, is a different situation. Um, and there's some athletic skills, of course, too, that like gymnastics or figure skating is going to be a little bit more like classical music than basketball or tennis, where, you know, these situations are much more fluid and dynamic and changing. But conceptually, a lot of things are the same, like in terms of there needing to be appropriate type of focus um, in the moment. So whether you're in a tennis match or on stage, there is a particular thing that's probably going to be more helpful for you to think about. So if you're a pianist and you're in the middle of um, a piano trio performance, probably not so helpful for you to be worrying about a difficult section in the next movement or on the next line for that matter, or what people in the audience are thinking or what you're going to eat for lunch afterwards. The most important or useful thing to think about at that moment might be the kind of sound that you want coming out of your instrument or what the violinist is doing at that moment that connects with what you're about to do that 
kind of takes what they gave you and then carries it into the next phrase and your part. Um, tennis players, well, as they're in the middle of a rally, not going to be helpful to think about the crowd or the last point that they just lost or what's going to happen if they lose that game uh, or, you know, what they're going to do for dinner with their friend afterwards and so forth. So so on, on a pretty higher level, conceptually, yes, there are probably much more similarities than differences. But in the granular level, there can certainly be some differences between sports and music. But again, there are lots of differences even between different sports. So, hmm. I recently had this experience, which you just described of, you know, Uh, thinking about what the audience uh, thinks of you and uh, I was performing concerts simple concerts uh, and I was totally fine I was really enjoying and then suddenly when I had to play same repertoire which I played six times on stage and I had the whole faculty of the university all you know prize winners and uh, professors And suddenly something was so wrong. I, I, I couldn't get into that mood of it's just a performance, you know. And uh, I wonder why why do we try to kind of uh, fulfill these expectations uh, to prove someone that we are better than we are, you know. Yeah, you know, it's a good question as to when that starts and where that comes from. I mean, I'm just guessing, but I imagine that when we're first starting out, we're all pretty tiny, generally speaking, and kind of little, and we don't know what good piano playing or good music sounds like. Um, we just kind of get started, and we're pretty dependent on our teachers to tell us what is, you know, quote, good and what is not desirable. And, um, and given how little we know, I think we could potentially very easily get sucked into not cultivating as deeply our own sense of what we care about or what sounds good to us and what is important to us. And, um, and, and I think most people at some point, um, we have that moment where we start to realize, oh yeah, my teacher wants me to play it this way. I don't know if I agree with that or I don't, if, I don't know if I like that. And there's, there's a little bit of inner conflict sometimes like, oh yeah, but you know, I'm still a student or I'm still studying. Like there's so much more experience, even though I've graduated and I have a career, like there are 30, 40 years ahead of me in terms of, their own kind of artistic development and so forth like who am i to say that this is better or this is right and i'm sure that they know do you know what i mean so i think it can be a, a phase that at some point we all have to deal with in terms of understanding that at some point it helps for us to cultivate uh, what's called an internal locus of evaluation but being able to decide you know do I believe in this particular way of phrasing this passage? Like, do I believe that this is how this should sound? Or this is the kind of mezzo forte that really works best in this particular moment and so forth. And, and I think you know, at some point we all have disagreements with our colleagues. Like they think, oh no, this is not the type of sound that the mezzo forte really suggests should be here in this particular moment. And then we have little arguments about it and chamber music rehearsals and so forth. Um, but yeah, I think part of what, helps us at some point is to start having clearer and clearer and stronger and stronger um, personal opinions about the choices that we've made yeah i think it's it's super hard to have that in this profession <laughs> because you kind of grow up uh, being criticized like you learn through criticism right mm -hmm. and I, i i think i read today in your blog or something like or or, or in the letter that you know there are these two completely different uh 
there should be two different attitudes when we practice, which is like, you know, we use this critis criticism, the, the voice inside of us, and we judge the situation that maybe the phrase was not good and we have to repeat it or change the phrasing. And then in the performance, since we don't practice the performance uh, mood, we kind of do the same and therefore we fail and we don't feel great. Is this something I rephrased it correctly? <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, this was a pretty big shift for me as well, understanding that there's a very big difference in the things that are helpful for us to think about and focus on in the practice room when we are learning or refining um, or developing a skill. And that is in many ways like 180 degrees in the opposite direction of what is most helpful for us to think about or focus on when we're performing a skill. So, for instance, um, I was reading a, a paper the other day about um, motor learning in sports. And so when you're learning a skill, it might be, let's say in baseball, it might be really helpful for you to be focused on what your shoulders are doing or what your wrists are doing or what your arms are doing, your elbows and so forth. But at some point, when it's time to perform that skill, the baseball player who's performing at a high level isn't necessarily thinking about the hands, the wrists, the shoulders, the hips, you know, the ankles, and so, and so forth. They, and if they do start thinking about that, they're going to run into problems. Like what they need to be thinking about to perform more effectively is what they want the sum total of those actions to produce. So it might be that focusing on the contact or the way that the ball is going to leave their bat as they hit and make contact, like that may end up becoming a much more useful to think, thing to think about than what their hands are doing. Um, similarly, there was a study somewhat like that with singers where they had a bunch of singers perform something in a hall that they had learned and they asked them to perform it multiple times, each time focusing on a different thing in the hall. So in one repetition, they were asked to focus on uh, something related to the soft palate um, in their mouth, which is more internally related to the production of sound. And then they also had them to uh, focus on projecting their sound to a microphone 18 inches in front of them. Um, in another condition, you know, to sing to the front row or to the middle row, to the back row, to um, the very back of the hall or uh, the very end um, or the very further furthermost condition or most external condition was to focus on filling the hall with their sound, the sound of their voice. And it depended to some degree on the individual, which I think was related to the stage of learning that they were or how skilled they were as a singer. But generally speaking, the more external and the more distal or further away their focus of attention the better their performance was. Of course, when you're learning how to sing a new piece or you're focused on improving a particular skill, doesn't necessarily make sense to focus on the back row. In the practice room, it might be much more useful to focus on something related to the technique or soft palate of your mouth. Um, and so, yeah, so our optimal target of attention for learning a skill and being able to perform that skill are oftentimes very, very different, if not opposite. So if I understand correctly, that basically what happens on stage, we shouldn't interfere with that. As in like, you know, what we what you learned, you learned. <laughs> and then when you play, 
you shouldn't just you know be too conscious about what you do and i think um, i don't know if you know this um, american uh, professor barbara oakley i also had a conversation with her she talks a lot about learning and uh, we talked about a declarative learning system and uh, Another one uh, was procedural, procedural learning system. And basically she said that, uh, for example, these uh, skills as playing an instrument most likely are learned through the procedural learning system because it has that system is the one which is uh, more uh, automatic. And then what happens when you kind of try to interfere with your, you know, what is this note? Do I know this note? You suddenly think throw yourself from that procedural learning system and then this is why you kind of lose the f uh, flow so I don't know is is there a way because you know when you talk about practicing it, it often feels like um, if it's so um, deliberate for me the answer is that okay then it means that I should know every single note very consciously but then I think you know, I have to learn such a big repertoire that, that there's no way I can know everything, you know, note by note. Something has to be kind of mechanical without my own uh, inter interference, you know. So how do I <laughs> balance these things? Well, it's it's a messy process and, and it's both, right? Like we go through different stages of learning when you're learning a new skill or learning a new piece. Um, there does have to be a lot more attention given to individual notes or individual mechanics like what this knuckle is doing or what the angle of your wrist is relative to the thumb and all these different things that have to be sorted out and understood and so forth and can't necessarily remain on autopilot or um, or out of your awareness but then at some point these individual skills get grouped together or chunked together or proceduralized and um, and if we do start thinking about the individual components we interrupt the automaticity of the motor movements and the movement patterns. And so, so yeah, it, it'd be nice if there was a very neat and tidy process by which this happens. But it's, you know, there are times where something is happening automatically that isn't ideal and you have to then bring awareness to it and break it down and break it apart and understand it and put it through um, a more deliberate process of problem solving. But then as that new skill becomes more automated and more natural and more um, familiar, then it's important to not think about the individual differences. And uh, I was talking to a, an Olympic diving coach years ago, and he said that, you know, in his experience, the best athletes seem to be going through this process cyclically all the time. So they're always getting things to a point where they're pretty automatic at a high level, but then they notice one thing that could be improved. And so they go back through this deliberate breaking it down process and understanding step-by-step step what needs to happen. And then it becomes increasingly automatic again. And then they find a new thing that they need to improve and they break it apart. So they're constantly kind of going back and, and improving things through these different stages of learning. And, and I think that makes sense. And I think every time you come back to a piece that you haven't played for a while, you do discover oh, you know, things have changed since the last time I played. I not only have a different concept, but I'm able to do things in a different way than I maybe was able to before, or certain things are easier for me and I'm able to play it at a higher level. And that then makes me hear things, more possibilities and nuances and subtle ways in which it could be even better. 
but I'm not able to do that consistently. What's missing? And right. So we, I think we do have that experience even from a young age, going back into repertoire that we played before. I wonder what happens in the brain suddenly that, you know, you feel kind of prepared and then a week <laughs> until your performance, you suddenly start questioning everything and maybe thinking even, you know, running away or flying to a different country <laughs> just not to play that day. You know, what, what? why? Why Why do we feel that way? I think our standards certainly change too. I think, you know, when we have plenty of time, I don't think we're listening as carefully um, as we are when it's like a day before or a week before. And I think we also tend not to really expose where our current level of playing is at on a day-to-day basis. But as we get closer and closer to the performance, we start realizing that maybe we're not as prepared or we start worrying that we're not as prepared as we really are. And um, as an example of that, what I mean is I think most of us know that we should be recording ourselves more often, but we tend to resist that um, as much as possible even doing run-throughs for other people, playing for friends who will still respect and like us and want to spend time with us, even if we make mistakes here and there. I think we tend to put that off as long as possible. And then it gets to the point where we can't put it off anymore. And then we start realizing how maybe not solid things feel in the week or two mm-hmm. before. And so um, one thing that uh, you know, a percussionist here in town that I've gotten to know has done is, I mean, weeks before his audition, he started recording himself first thing in the morning. That is not the way I think most musicians would like to start off their morning, like hearing how things really sound um, without having practiced anything. But I do think it makes a lot more sense to record yourself first in the day and then practice the things that you heard in that recording instead of getting comfortable, warming up, practicing, sounding good, and then recording, which is, I think, how we if we do any recording at all, how we tend to do it. Um, and yeah, so there's this thing known as the mastery illusion where we tend to evaluate or judge where we think we are with our repertoire based on how we sound at the end of practice, even though the reality is that repertoire is most honestly exposed as being where it is at the very beginning of practice. Um, and so then I think as we get closer to performance, we start realizing that wait, the way things sound when I first start playing in the morning, that isn't good for me. <laughs> like that's not making me happy and satisfying to me. And so we start worrying that, oh, wow, I should have practiced more or started recording sooner. Or uh, we start having those second uh, guessing types of doubts and thoughts. Could we actually talk a little bit more about that recording pro- uh, process? Because I, I kind of wanted to do that, but I hesitated, which you probably know everyone does, right? And I, I, I downloaded your uh, practice uh, guide and I didn't do it because I was like, I still don't know that piece, so should I record when I'm learning it? It's like I cannot re- even play the text. So please clarify when to record and, uh, you know, what is that? process which is uh, which you write to be very helpful yeah so so rob knopper is the name of the percussionist in the met opera orchestra who um who started recording for him the the rule of thumb was as soon as i can play this at tempo i'm gonna run it so it's not performance ready it's not even really play for 
a friend who doesn't know anything about music ready. Like it is just at tempo. Um, and there's honestly like a whole process in terms of getting it to tempo. Cause I know some people don't even get things up to tempo until not very, um, not very far away from the performance. Right. Whereas some people tend to get it at tempo much sooner. Other people have a process by which they work it up over time. And so, um, so that can even affect things as well. But basically my guideline is is similar to Rob's. Like as soon as you can get through most of the notes um, near-ish tempo, it's time to record. And it doesn't mean that you have to record every single day at that point, but it's helpful to record pretty regularly so that you get a sense of, okay, what are the biggest problems that are likely to happen in a run-through under pressure? Because, uh, you know, the problem with recording at the end of a practice session is it sounds better. But if you then listen back to the recording and be like, okay, what things do I need to work on? It's going to be a, a slightly, if not possibly very different list of things to work on in your next practice session than the things that you would hear on the very first run through of a performance. And so you end up not wasting your time, but you end up spending your time on things that may not translate as importantly to performance under pressure as you could be. The other thing for me that's, that's, really critical of recording and this goes back to the difference between what's most useful to think about when you're practicing versus when you're performing is when you're performing effectively you know if you think about times when you were in the zone as it were you're not really self-monitoring your performance in the same critical analytical sort of way like you're just immersed in the moment just performing you're not thinking am i rushing um is this note out of tune? Like, were these notes even? Um, am I taking too much time here? Like, is this idea coming across to the listener? Like, you're just playing. Like, you're completely in the moment. You're kind of lost in the music, and you're having a good time, and so forth. And so the idea with recording well in advance is to make sure that when you're focused on, you know, colors or pulse or... Um, tiny shades of spontaneous nuances in the moment to make sure that when you listen back, you're then able to do all the critical analysis and listening and make sure that you're not rushing or you're not taking too much time or, um, you know, the, the articulation is exactly the kind of articulation that you want and the notes are coming out evenly and so forth. Um, and over time you can start trusting that, oh, okay, I don't have to tell myself what my elbow needs to do here, what my shoulder needs to do. Like my body is at the point where it will automatically do the things that I need it to do. Uh, but the only way you can know that for sure is to have recordings of yourself to listen back to and to also practice every day or regularly giving yourself permission to not think about your elbow or your wrist or self-monitor rhythmic precision um, or dynamic contrast and so forth, but just to trust that that's already baked into your your muscle memory, as it were. And that kind of happens once you hit the record button, right? So you kind of uh, almost imitate a little bit the performance moment right with the, as far as i understood yeah absolutely okay i feel like it's all sound good but changing your old habits you know especially like uh, practicing habits and i believe i have for example i have this uh, resilience of you know recording oh i don't really trust this project uh, this process okay i'll do it next time when i have more time and it feels like uh, I'm interested in all in all the things, but 
something is telling me not to do that and just stick to my old process because I feel like, okay, it's kind of the only one I know and I'm not sure if if I do something else that it will help me on stage. And how how could I, you know, and everyone else who feels similarly trick and kind of break this spell, you know? You know, I think for a lot of people, and this is, it's the same with any kind of behavior change, uh, whether it's changing, you know, your approach to eating or starting an exercise program or quitting smoking or something. Um, usually people get to a certain point where continuing to do things as they have just doesn't work for them anymore. Like they either reach a certain level of frustration or dissatisfaction or something that they're like, all right, you know what, it's, it's time to make a change. But even if you don't get to that point, I think it's possible to make changes as long as they're smaller. So um, Caroline Code is third chair violist in the Detroit Symphony here in the States and teaches at the University of Michigan. And she has a rule for her students uh, for recording, which basically, it's very simple, it's don't record more than 90 seconds. And her rationale is that a lot of times the resistance to recording is not only just the resistance to recording, but the resistance to having to listen back and how much time that yes. can take. And so in her mind, she's like, yeah, 90 seconds seems to be a pretty good chunk of time where you can record enough stuff, but not so much that it takes you longer than 90 seconds to listen back. And 90 seconds doesn't elicit as much resistance as 30 minutes or 20 minutes or even five minutes. And so I would be inclined to even take that further where, uh, and there's actually, you know, a whole series of books on this concept that's called Kaizen, where um, so, for instance, if it was important to start an exercise program, uh, let's say that, you know, you just were diagnosed with um, some condition which suggested that because um, of how much weight you're carrying around, um, you know, you, your lifespan was going to be shortened. And it was critical that you lose weight and you, you know, strengthen your heart and gain cardiovascular fitness and so forth. Knowing that if you don't exercise, you're going to die sooner would seem like a good motivator. But as it turns out, it's not enough of a motivator to actually change behavior because these behaviors that led to that situation are so well-learned and ingrained and comfortable that even if you don't want to die sooner, it's still really difficult to know exactly what to do and, and to change that. And so this one doctor um, started having... Um, his patients do very tiny trivial changes that became easier over time. So, you know, if you need to go for a walk on your treadmill every morning, um, that is hard to do, but it's not so difficult to drink your coffee while standing on the treadmill. So he'd have a patient, you know, every morning when you drink your coffee, instead of drinking your coffee while sitting, reading the newspaper at your dining table, just read your newspaper while drinking coffee while standing on the treadmill. Don't have to turn it on. Don't have to like walk or anything. You just need to, to change the location of your coffee and newspaper. And after a few weeks of that, it's like, oh, that becomes kind of a more familiar habit. It's like, all right, so now I want you, you know, after, you know, you finish your coffee and, and newspaper, um, you know, just walk for 30 seconds and then you're done. That's it. 
30 seconds after that whole process. Um, and so, you know, you kind of build on these little tiny changes over time and it gets easier and easier to do their thing because there's less and less resistance to changing these habits. And so it might be that if recording is something that one decides it's important to do, don't even start with recording 90 seconds. I mean, just start with setting up your recording equipment and it might just be taking your phone out and clicking on the app that records sound. That's it. You don't even turn it on. You just click the app, put it on your stand or on your piano, and then you practice as normal. Um, and then after a few weeks of doing that, maybe you record the first line or the first measure, like something trivially small, and do that for days or a couple few weeks. Um, and then you know, just kind of build it up to there. Maybe 90 seconds is something that takes a few months to build up to. Um, but then mm. you can really expand that process. You know, you can expand the ways in which you listen back. You can listen back for different things each time. You can listen back, um, you know, with a particular process for writing down what sorts of things you want to work on or for prioritizing them and so forth. But, but I think it all starts by making some sort of habit um, an easier one to adopt. Hmm. No, thank you so much. I think uh, you motivated me, and I was, I'm gonna start recording. <laughs> Another thing Just to keep before. in mind, oh, yeah. you know, you use the word motivation. I think, you know, I've been talking about this with my kids, and have found it to be true for myself as well. I think a lot of times we we focus too much on motivation, where it's like, oh, I need to yes. be motivated to do something, and then when I'm motivated to do it, I'll do it. And you know, a lot of people have talked about you know a lot of business folks have talked about this and how actually we don't need motivation to change a behavior <laughs> we just have to change the behavior and then oftentimes what will happen is because of the changes that that behavior change produce for us the motivation to continue to to make changes and to continue to grow and, and deepen that behavioral change actually grows so a lot of times motivation does not precede behavior change so much as behavior change actually leads to more motivation in the future. So yeah, just, you know, for your listeners to, for me that... Yeah, I've never thought about it, that it's it's the other way, kind of. It works other way. Right. I, I just wanted to ask you before, because I have uh, three questions uh, from my listeners, mm -hmm. and uh, I wanted to ask about your daily routine, because actually I think what, um, as musicians, we face in the 21st century that... Many of us not only practices, you know, and for you, for example, you also do a podcast, you have a blog, you teach, you know, many, many different different things. And um, for me, for example, I run festival, I have to practice, I, I, I go, you know, rehearse with people and I do this podcast. And sometimes it just feels that it's just impossible to to have time for everything. And I wanted to ask maybe from uh, your you know your personal experience how do you manage that because this kind of also feels like performance uh, related you know yeah you know i wish i had a great answer and it's possible that maybe there isn't a great answer and that our routines ultimately are going to be a little bit messy um, i can't say mm -hmm. that i have a consistent daily routine but my week does look relatively consistent from one week to the next i mean there's a day in which i teach there's a day in which I try to put clients, there's a day in which I know I need to have, you know, a paper picked out 
to write about. There's a day where I do most of the writing. There's the day where I do the recording. There's a day where I do grading for classes. And there's certain days where I exercise at certain times and have certain classes and so forth. So, um, and then you throw kids into the mix and sometimes it all blows up. But <laughs> I do think that for me, it has helped to have a particular rhythm to every week. And so even if certain days get disrupted, the rhythm of the week still feels relatively consistent. Um, and I'm able to kind of gauge, can I fit certain things into this week or can I not? Um, and so I don't know if that answers the question of what the, the, the daily routine looks like, but, um, but yeah, I mean, another thing that it's like a little tiny detail, I suppose with the daily routine is I do try to avoid looking at email throughout the day. Like I do try to, batch that at one particular part of the day so I'm not constantly being tempted to disrupt whatever that day's flow ought to look like because of emails that pop in that I might be more tempted to respond to or act on and so forth yeah I think I haven't learned that yet <laughs> but I'm on the right track <laughs> so let's go to the questions and actually actually it's funny because I have uh four three questions and they are all about memory lapses on stage so the the first one is um, from a pianist and uh, she uh, said that she found a way how she could uh, kind of uh, be more secure about the text she uses uh, mental practice uh, to you know to internalize the, the the notes but she still feels very insecure in a way that she cannot really trust the the the, the homework and the, the process she did. And uh, her question was how she could actually get rid of those doubts that, you know, she doesn't know the text and then she will have the memory lapse. Because she says that what I understood that she is not actually very scared to have a memory lapse. She's just annoyed that those thoughts are the only thoughts she's thinking on stage. You know, memory is an interesting thing. I mean, because there's multiple components of memory, right? There's there's the confidence in our encoding process. Like how confident are we in the system that we have of making sure the notes and the music and the ideas are put into our brain, as it were. And then there's, you know, the whole part where we have to get things from being in short-term memory to long-term memory. But then once things are in long-term memory, we still need to be able to get them out. And so there's also confidence in our ability to retrieve the notes and the information and so forth that we need. I, there's the other part of it for me is also how do we avoid worrying about it in the moment when we're performing? And that's a whole other set of skills around attention control. Sort of like earlier when we were talking about how you know, probably not useful for a pianist to be worrying about what they're going to have for dinner while they're in the middle of a performance. Probably better to be focused on what their chair music partners are doing or how they want to shape the phrase they're currently playing in the moment. And so having um, what some people have called a blueprint for attention or a mental script of thoughts to engage in that are much more relevant and useful and helpful to what they're performing so, for instance, focusing on you know, a particular sense of pulse that underlies the phrase that you're playing or the kind of sound exactly that you want out of your instrument or the particular um, kind of articulation that you're going for or the mood of the character that you're trying to elicit. Like some of these things are easy to 
forget to think about in the moment because it's easy to worry about you know what's coming up next or what is the audience going to think but the more we can practice these sorts of things in our run-throughs and our mock performances and our mock auditions and so forth the easier it is to keep our mind where it needs to be in performance because one of the ironies is the more you worry about having a memory set the more likely you are to have a memory set because your mind is not actually focused on what is important and relevant in the music right at this moment and so i mean so for that specific question um i think it's a partly a matter of testing your memory out in advance but having a clear script of things to think about as you're performing that are much more aligned with you know the kind of intention you have for the music at each point and maybe even um you know having a narrative of some kind there's a variety of ways of doing this but you know one way that some people do it is to have a narrative in mind and it's like oh this is a section where you know the the girl's new puppy goes missing and then you know they're scrambling around the house looking for it and it's like oh did it get outside the door's open like all these moments are kind of correspond with different moments in the piece and so it makes it easier to kind of track the passage of one phrase to the next without getting lost or worrying about that you're going to get lost because i think a lot of times you know the notes on the page can seem a little bit abstract but if each phrase is connected with a particular scene and a narrative um, or character becomes a lot easier to remember that passage of events um you know folks in memory competitions call this you know memory palace where basically they associate certain bits of information with a different room in the house or a different location in their city or um, some uh, visual or some tangible actual real world thing um, that's easier for them to remember so so similar thing can be done with music for instance and i guess uh, this uh, recording process could also really be helpful here right so you so i would play through and i would kind of try to go through that mental script just kind of practicing it right mm -hmm. yeah okay. so basically you're practicing so, what you want your mm -hmm. brain to do on stage in performance um so that when you yes, get there we, you know we kind exactly, of never do that <laughs> yeah i know it's it seems like a waste of time and we don't have time for that we exactly. need to work on the notes and make sure everything's clean and Uh, but then we get on stage and I think we realize, oh, crap, <laughs> like I'm not really prepared in the way that I would like to be for this kind of um, demand. Yes, exactly. Have you ever actually yourself reached that that mental state where you felt like, wow, I actually feel great on stage? That's what happened at that competition. I mean, that's, again, you know, the most pressure could have experienced uh, was not as prepared as i should have been um but i knew exactly what to focus my attention on to enable me to give myself the best chance of playing as well as i could given the circumstances and and yeah like from that moment on like it started to become clear and clear to me how important it was to have really clear attentional goals um, in a performance and how to keep my attention where I needed to be and how massive a difference that made in my experience of performing because there wasn't any room to worry about the audience or worry about making mistakes or worrying about memory or worrying about the shift coming up or beating myself up for having missed something like it meant I was much more present which qualitatively changed my experience of playing and 
became easier and easier over time afterwards, uh, regardless of my level of preparation, to be able to go there mentally. It's so funny because now when we talk about music and the performing itself, everything uh, sounds very precise and practical. And uh, from a listener point of view, very often it seems that music is something, you know, heaven and we only think about colors and uh, emotions but actually to reach that that and you know to be honest every time when i speak with uh, a performer who feels uh, who feels great or 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 you know achieves some great results on stage they're very often so practical about what they do and they say they say like i just think you know mathematically where i go what do i do and it's so interesting these two kind of opposing uh, opposing forces you know so last question i mean the 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 previous one was uh, something about memory but keeping it uh, kind of fresh because uh, the pianist also felt that once you kind of bring back the old pieces memory is there but you can no longer keep the the freshness of the piece so uh, do you have any tips how to keep it fresh <laughs> even you know when it's old repertoire yeah you know i'm always curious about this myself with um with musicians and i've asked some and and usually their answers revolve around getting to know the piece better right because they've evolved as a musician since the last time they played it and you know they look at the score differently try to imagine that you've never played it before what does the score actually say and um, actually leon fleischer said something to this effect once and you know just said that you know if you actually look at the score and play what is literally written in the score oftentimes you discover that the piece is a different one than the one that you thought you knew and i think there is a lot to that like when you just play it like even play without in any inflection um and you just kind of hear okay what does this piece sound like i mean i guess it might almost be like if you listened to like a midi file of that piece coming straight out of finale or sibelius or something it sounds like a different piece than the one that you've been playing um and i think that can oftentimes reveal other ways of thinking about it that then becomes sort of intriguing to explore. Um, another thing that can be useful is to just play it in vastly different ways, even things that you wouldn't do in a performance. Um, this is something that I've read uh, that Martin Krauss had his students do. And I don't know if it was Claudio Rao who was describing this or some other student of his that was describing this. But yeah, apparently he had his students play things in, in dramatically different ways than they would on stage in ways that weren't even suggested by the score you know very different types of articulation and dynamics and musical ideas and even transposing it in different ways and so forth which i think can it's a little bit like you know when you play a different chamber music piece with different people they have different ideas and they make you try different things that initially you might think are kind of stupid but then you try it, it's like huh that actually worked better than I could have imagined. Yeah. That's actually a good thing. Um, so I think, yeah, just trying things that you may never do on stage and may not even like, but um, are at least vastly different, I think can help with um, help with actually playing it differently the next time instead of just trying to play it the same way you played it before. Okay, so now really last question. <laughs> There was this quote from a musician that um, she says, if you study slowly, you are getting the brain used to not being able to play it fast. Mm -hmm. 
-hmm. and uh, she was wondering if it's true yeah there's a lot to this actually um jason solomon is the name of a, a trombone professor here in the united states and um he was doing his DMA at Indiana University and somehow had additional time. And so he did a, a master's in kinesiology as well and um, started to look into the research on effective motor learning and some of the principles around this and and did start, start to find that it slow practice doesn't make as much sense as we've kind of been led to believe that it does. Doesn't mean that slow practice is not worthwhile. Um, there can be times where slow practice is very useful and important and, and a critical part of learning effectively. But um, the only way of learning tricky, difficult passages is not slow it down until you can play it perfectly and then gradually increase it. Because you're right, like what can happen is because you can afford to do things slow that are not possible at tempo, you can end up actually reinforcing I guess we can call them bad habits. You can actually create bad motor habits at slow tempo, even though it sounds good and sounds perfect and you're able to play it effectively because you're reinforcing things that are not possible at tempo. You're going to have to unlearn those at some point. You can very easily get stuck somewhere along the way and have difficulty doing what is needed at tempo because you've gotten used to doing it in a way that cannot be done at tempo. Um, so yeah, there, there are times where learning things from the very beginning at tempo is actually a much more effective way of ensuring that we're cultivating the right set of motor skills. The only challenge, of mm. course, is is you cannot play a thousand notes at tempo without making a bunch of mistakes. And so the way people generally tend to approach this is only play a tiny chunk of notes that you can actually get um, relatively accurately at tempo and then just kind of combining chunks together in the same way that we would memorize something, right? You don't memorize all, you know, tens of thousands of notes simultaneously. Like you memorize phrases and then you connect the phrases and then you build the piece up um, chunk by chunk. Yeah, this sounds so right because very often we kind of get sleepy <laughs> with the slow playing and we think we know it, but we actually don't. <laughs> so you're... Um, I just wanted to kind of ask you for the finishing line and because, you know, you've seen so many musicians and so many musicians went through your hands kind of. Maybe you could share what you noticed, what is, um, what uh, kind of, you know, character traits or behaviors uh, successful performance have and, you know, in what kind of direction we should all go or we shouldn't, but, you know, if we want to. <laughs> You know, that's actually kind of a tricky question because I think success means different things and everyone's a little bit different. I do think that one thing that probably is very worth cultivating is um, the willingness to experiment with new things and to try new things and to basically take the risk of sounding bad. So whether it's practice approaches that might actually make us feel in the moment like we're improving more slowly but lead to better performance on stage or recording first thing in the morning to see where things really are or trying new mental skills in the hopes of it leading to better performance two months from now but right now it may not necessarily work out or even new ways of approaching our instrument and approaching technical challenges and different 
um, ways of playing our instrument. You know, maybe we were able to play our instrument in a certain way up until this point, but then in order to make the leap to the next level, we actually have to change some pretty major fundamental things about how we approach our instrument and technique. Like, I think the ability to to try new things and to risk taking a step back or appearing to take a step back in the moment and basically the, the willingness to to kind of suck occasionally um is probably a really <laughs> important <good. laughs> characteristic you know even beyond music in any aspect of our lives that uh, that does seem to be something that um, successful or top performers in any field seem to be able to do for themselves yeah so basically just uh be okay to not be perfect right <laughs> okay Noah. thank you so much it was so useful and i can't can't wait to start recording me <laughs> <laughs> sounds good and uh, maybe you could just tell me where people could find you and uh, you know I, I know that you write this blog so i think it's really useful maybe people could yeah you know subscribe and just basically some information yeah, so I think the easiest place to find me is bulletproofmusician.com. Um, when people sign up for the weekly newsletter, not only do they get a new practice hack that's based in some research I've been reading that week, uh, but you start off with you know like a series of daily practice challenges for like the first five or six days after you sign up. Every day, you get a new, slightly different practice challenge to try out something new to kind of give you a sense of what mental skills training would actually look like in the practice room on a day-to-day -day basis so, so yeah thank you for joining open art day today i really hope you enjoyed this episode and as always if you find it valuable please share it on your social media with your friends on instagram or facebook this is the best way to help me reach more people and that uh, this valuable information reaches the right people and uh, if you would like to help me grow this podcast, you can always support me via Patreon. And uh, you can find the link uh, in the episode notes. And if you have any comments or feedback or any guest wishes, I'm very looking forward to your requirements. You can always uh, email me at uh, monikapianiste at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening.